Watch this. When our next guest woke up from anesthesia from uh, wisdom tooth surgery, her loving and caring brothers were there to support her and make her believe that the apocalypse had begun. Take a look. The Center for Disease Control in Washington, D.C. has issued a viral outbreak warning. State and local officials have reported cases of high fever, nausea, death, and even cannibalism. Yes? Okay, okay, I'm pulling the driver right now. What else did you ask Marines? I can't get it start going now. This is how you use it. Safety's right here. Pull this. Try it. I need you to see you do it, okay? You gotta hold it up. If anything Hold the weapon. Hold it up. No, hold it up. Hold it up, hold it up okay? You got it? Okay, I'll be right back. We can only take one pet. Which pet? The cat or the dog? The We're leaving the dog. Okay, that's fine. We can only take Fun Betty or chocolate cake. Which one do we take? Fun Betty. Do you want Fun Betty or chocolate? Why do you need that? Which? No, no, see, this is important. This will be what we're living off of. Which one? Fun Betty, chocolate. Dad said that since he's in Las Vegas, that he's close to Mexico and he wants us to meet him in Mexico. How good is your Spanish still from high school? I, I, I can say pants. <laughs> Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Now what, Kevin, could you possibly be communicating with that beautiful moment? Um, It's simply this. We all encounter opposition. Some real, some imagined, but we all encounter opposition in life. And we do. Even as I think back to my time when I was a sixth grader playing soccer. Sixth grader was an interesting time in life, especially if you're a guy. Uh, because we played against a team, and we never played them before, but we line up against them, and I see a group of guys, and, and he, the only way they recruited them, I'm convinced, is that they figured out every kid in the Houston area who had already gone through puberty as a 12-year-old and stuck them on that team, right? So they're all big and hairy and twice the size of all of us. Guys, you know what I'm talking about, if you, unless you were that kid, and you're like, what are you talking about? They're all just smaller. Yeah, yeah. But for some of us, they looked huge, and we're shaving, and we're standing here going, how do I overcome these big, hairy men that, this is like they're on steroids, right? You know, in testosterone version. So I, I, I feel like we've all encountered those moments when you feel like the opposition stacked against us is so big, it's insurmountable. And I'll tell you what, even in the Christian life, I think we felt the same way. We felt like the, the, sometimes the odds stacked against us feel so big There's so many things attacking us, we can't even overcome it. And that is the moment where we find Nehemiah. He's in the midst of overwhelming opposition. And if you've been with us as we've walked through the the book of Nehemiah, we've seen him unite a people because his heart was broken for the things that God was broken for. And last week, he literally walked the ruins and gathered a people together to start rebuilding the wall. And as the rebuilding starts we see opposition arise. And the truth is this. If you're a Christian and you want to follow Jesus, you will encounter opposition along the way. You will. Every one of us will. But have you ever wondered why? You ever wondered what is God's goal in the midst of that opposition? I mean, they're trying to tear me down. What is God trying to build? 
Well, J, or Oswald Chambers, in his book, uh, My Utmost First Highest, writes this. God does not give us overcoming life. He gives us life as we overcome. The strain of life is what builds our strength. If there is no strain, there is no strength. Are you asking God to give you life, liberty, and joy? He cannot, unless you are willing to accept the strain. And once you face the strain, you will immediately get strength. Overcome your timidity and take the first step. Then God will give you nourishment. There's three tactics that we're going to look at this morning. Three tactics that the enemy uses and three things that God wants to build within his people. He wants to build within you faithfulness, unity, and focus. And God will use tactics from the enemy where they are looking to destroy. He's actually looking to build. And the the first one we see is insults. In Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we just read it. We see that Sambalat heard that they were rebuilding the wall. And he was angry and greatly enraged. And then he starts talking smack. Now, who is Sambalat? Well, he's the governor of Samaria. Samaria was a region just to the north of, of, of Judah. And he is a, a ruler of that area. And he hears that the people of Israel are rising in strength. That's basically what's happening when they're rebuilding the wall. They're going to be a safe place, not vulnerable to attack. And he's afraid that they are going to rise in power and strength and be able to oppose him. And so he starts doing what I think a lot of people do, is they start insulting the work. And it doesn't stop with him. He gets his buddy to chime in too. And Tobiah chimes in. He goes, look look at what they're building. I mean, if a fox were to jump on it, it would topple over. And that doesn't communicate well to us because we don't play with foxes on a normal basis. But foxes are small, delicate animals. It's not like a rhino, right? It's not an elephant. It's a small animal. He's saying, like, if little kittens came over to your little wall, they would knock it over. You know, so it's, he's trying to communicate that they're a dainty little animal, and your work is ultimately worthless. What are they doing? They're trash talking. We see this all the time in our culture. And what's the point of trash talking? To demoralize your opponent. So uh, several years ago, uh, uh, Richard Sherman, he's a cornerback for the Seattle Seahawks, and he had this grudge match with Michael Crabtree, right? Played for Tech back in the day. And there, literally, they were, there was a battle of words between these two guys. And not only did they go at it on the field, he continued it even all the way into his interviews. And so when he would be interviewed after the game, he would be talking all sorts of smack about Michael Crabtree. He's like, I'm going to get that guy, whatever. And, and you see this kind of play out all, not just in the NFL, but in the NBA. I grew up watching um, Michael Jordan play basketball. You probably didn't, but I did. And he was one of the most uh, amazing players to ever play the game. And there was one game in particular where the uh, Chicago Bulls are playing the Charlotte Hornets. And this was a huge moment in the game. And they needed to bounce back in order to, to beat this team to get to the NBA playoffs in 1995. And Muggsy Bogues, a five foot three point guard, is guarding Michael Jordan, who's 6'6". This is legitimate. This is real. And he's guarding him. And at one point during the game, Muggsy Bogues has the ball at the top of the key, and he's dribbling. I mean, and you think about this guy. If you're 5'3 in the NBA, you've overcome all sorts of obstacles, Right? I mean, if you can make it to the NBA and you're 5'3", I mean, you've overcome a lot. 
But he stands in front of Michael Jordan, and Michael backs up from him. Muggsy is at three-point line. He goes, shoot it, you midget. And Muggsy in that moment grabs the ball and shoots and misses everything. Complete air ball. That was a demoralizing moment in Muggsy Bogues' career. And he says this. He told Johnny Bach, he was the coach of the 1995 Hornets, Bogues told him that that moment ruined his career. He was never the same, averaging just 5.9 points per game from the remainder of his career after three straight years of putting up double-digit points. That moment, that insult from one of the best players in the world demoralized him and made him completely ineffective. And I tell you what, as you walk your Christian life, there can be moments when you take hits, when it feels like people are speaking against you and, and the things you're trying to build in your life in following God, it feels like other people are just breaking them down. I remember when I was in college, I first started walking um, with God between my sophomore and junior year of college. And I came back um, and I was with, with some guys on the track team and they didn't say it to me directly, just kind of off to the side, you know, so it wasn't as offensive, right? Just talked about me behind my back, you know? And, and they, said, they said this to each other, hey, don't invite Kevin to that. He's doing his Christian thing. And it wasn't an overt attack, but it was just one of those slams. And I thought to myself, okay, God, I'm trying to follow you, right? I, I, I'm trying to get my life going in the right direction. I'm, I'm trying to like set some things in order and, and really pursue you with my heart. And as soon as I start building, I feel like other people are shooting arrows at everything I'm trying to build. Have you ever felt that way? You ever wonder, God, why would you do that? Why would you allow these people to respond to me in that way? And it's simply because God's trying to build one thing within you, faithfulness. God will allow all sorts of circumstances in your life that are designed to demoralize you, to build within you faithfulness. 1 Peter 1 says it this way, In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ. Why does God allow the fires of testing in our life? How does he form gold-like faith? through the fires of those same testings. So what will God do in our lives? He'll let us encounter difficulty. And the difficulty isn't designed to break you. The difficulty is allowed allowed to create within you dependent faith. A faith that is dependent on God as you walk your life. And look at his prayer in verse 4. His prayer in verse 4, he says this, Hear, O our God, for we are despised, Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to the plunder in a land where they are held captive. He says, God, do to them what was done to us. Which doesn't sound like a good prayer. Okay. And then verse 5, do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. He says to them, Lord, plunder them and kill and don't forgive them. That's what I want you to do. Plunder them, don't forgive them. Which sounds like a really great prayer, right? 
And you may be nice saying, I would never pray something like that. But let's just be honest. Have you ever been in a moment when you're insulted? When you feel like people are attacking your integrity, your work, what you're trying to build? And you say, Lord, if they could all burn, that would be great. In your name we pray. Amen. Right? Have you ever done that? Am I the only one that prayed for the demise of others? Okay, so it's just me up here. But I think we've all felt that. We've all felt like these people are against me, and they're not just attacking me. They're attacking you, God. They're attacking what you're trying to build. And I tell you what, this is a type of prayer in the Old Testament. It's called an imprecatory prayer. In case you want to impress your friends later on at lunch. Imprecatory prayer. It's when you pray for the demise of another, but here's why he's praying it. Because they are working against the work of God. They are standing opposed to the work that God is trying to carry out. And what he says, and I think it's beautiful, he says, God, you do something. See, Romans 12 tells us that God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Nehemiah doesn't say, here, give me a sword and give me a mission. He's not saying, I'm going to take it upon myself to destroy these people. He's saying, God, you do it. I'm laying it into your hands. I'm overwhelmed. So please, overwhelm them. And, uh, and although uh, in New Testament times we don't get these types of prayers, I think God honors it because he's revealing his heart. I mean, I love David in the, in the Psalms, if you read it. He's like, Lord, please do something. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Will you do something? And God says, I, I will do something. And it won't be always in line with what you're praying. But when you come to me with your real heart, I will move in. And the second thing that God does, or that Nehemiah does in this moment, is he has an act of faithfulness. See what it says in verse 6? It says, so we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height. See, in each one of these attacks, each one of these tactics that the enemy uses, there's two responses that Nehemiah has every time. He prays and he acts. Because God doesn't merely want you to pray for him to move. He also wants you to put things in place to to help start building your life in the right direction. So what does he do? He starts building slowly. And the wall comes up to half its height. You know what we need to do in the midst of the insults we take when we feel like our progress is being thwarted by the people around us? You take small steps forward. So what does that mean for us? That means you keep on having the quiet time even when you don't feel like it. That means you keep on praying even when you feel like God isn't answering. It means you keep on meeting with that awkward small group even though you don't know where it's all going. Because God blesses the small acts of faithfulness and over time, the wall will get built. So the first thing we see through the insults is that this people became faithful to God. The second impact, or the second tactic is this, intimidation. Because the enemy didn't stop at insults. It actually went, took it a step further to intimidation. Verse four, chapter 4, verse 7 says it this way. But when Sambal and Tobiah, the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashtonites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them. The prayer and the action. Verse 10. In Judah it was said, 
The strength of those who bear the burden is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. You see what happens in this moment? If they can't take them out through insulting, they up the ante. They turn up the heat. And they get a, a coalition of fighters, like of, of armies, to come together against the wall to, to try to destroy these people. And as they're coming along with this coalition, Nehemiah does a great thing. He steps up, okay, let's, let's build the wall, let's fortify the walls, let's stand there, guard of it, let's pray, and let's station people to protect it. But the faith of the people was still falling. I was reading um, a book by C.S. Lewis. It's called The Screwtape Letters. Fans? Anyone? And I was, as I was reading it, I was reading about the tactics of the enemy. Uh, it, the book itself was written by C.S. Lewis, and, and to write it, he basically got into the mind of a demon. And the, the premise of the book is this, that a, an elder demon is advising a younger demon on how to derail a Christian or derail a person. And they're talking about strategy. And at one moment in, in, in his letters, written back from the elder to the protege, and at one moment in it, he writes, the elder writes this, tortured fear or stupid confidence are both desirable states of mind. See what he's saying? If the enemy can get you living in fear, he has completely made you ineffective. If he can get you afraid of the opposition against you, he can completely take you out of the mission of God. One of my favorite movies is The Lord of the Rings. Fans? Yes. And there's one moment in Lord of the Rings that is actually my favorite moment in all the movies. And it takes place at Helm's Deep. And as they're, they're there on the wall, there's the heroes kind of on the wall, and suddenly a, a mountain of orcs start coming at them. And they start coming and coming and coming in groups of tens and thousands. It looks like millions CG'd in there, right, as they're all coming towards them. And as they're all coming towards them, you see these men standing side by side. And they ask this question. How can one stand against such hate? And as they stand there kind of questioning, fortifying, trying to get a plan together, the most epic moment in the movie occurs. The elves arrive. Now, if you don't know Lord of the Rings, you probably think they're little people building toys. Negative. Not little people. They're a fighting force. They're a legitimate fighting force. I mean, these are the best fighters around. They bring in and they say, where do we need to stand? We will fight with you at Helm's Deep. And it's this amazing stand, climactic moment at the end of the movie. And you look at that and you're like, that's amazing. That's what you want. When you feel intimidated, what you want are a bunch of amazing fighters to get around you. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does next. In verse 11, it says, Our enemies said they will, they will know um, or see us. In verse, 13, verse 12, At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the spaces behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed people by their clans, like families, with swords and spears and bows. Jump down to verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. 
From that day on, half my servants worked on construction and half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried the burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held a weapon in his other. And each of the builders had its sword strapped to its side while he built. See what he did? He brought in the whole community of Jews. They were a scattered people. And he brought them all in. Okay, the enemy is coming. We need everyone here. And everyone gets a sword and a trowel. A sword to fight the enemy and a trowel to build up the wall. We need everyone armed together to overcome this overwhelming opposition. And see, that's what God does. In the midst of intimidation, God wants to build unity. When you feel overwhelmed, God wants you to run to him and to his people. In Nehemiah 4.14, he says that the battle is the Lord's. He says the Lord will fight for you, so guard. And then in 12 through 18, he says, look, the, the goal of all of this is that we would be unified together. One of my favorite moments in the Old Testament is actually occurs in uh, 2 Kings chapter 6. You might be familiar with the moment. Elijah is a prophet, and he's standing on a mountain with a servant beside him. And there's a huge enemy army coming against him. And Elijah's standing there calm, just chill, just kind of relaxed. And the servant's like, okay, what do we need to do? Do we need to run, hide, hide in a cave? And he's like, calm down, calm down. And then he prays for him. Lord, open his eyes. And the servant's eyes were opened, and he saw around him chariots all around Elijah and fire all around him. The entire hillside was full of horses and chariots, and there was fire around Elijah. Can you imagine being in that moment? You see your eyes are opened up, and there's flames surrounding Elijah and horses around it. And I tell you what, that's what God does with his people. See, God never is overwhelmed by the enemy. God's never overwhelmed by the opposition against you. He is with his people, and he is standing beside them to protect them. He's never overwhelmed by the opposition. But oftentimes, we miss the need for unity. Paul says in Philippians 1 this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come to you or remain absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened by any of your opponents, for this is a clear sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. You know why God allows you to be intimidated? So you would reach out and lean on them. Who's them? Brothers and sisters that can help carry you when you feel overwhelmed. I remember when I first experienced this, I, I led a mission trip. I was about 25 years old, and it was my first time to lead a legitimate, huge mission trip. And we went down to Houston, and it was called the Houston Project, and we were helping people by putting on a VBS at a church that was really kind of broken down and not in a good state. And we were also um, going to a free clinic a hospital, Bentop Hospital, and, and sharing the gospel and standing there. And we're also giving out papers to all the people in the community to invite them out to, to this event that we were going to do to share the gospel with them. And day three during the week, I was completely exhausted. 
I mean, all the planning, all the organizing, all the stress of the entire event, I was completely floored. And I remember at one point, we were supposed to go to Bentop Hospital that night from like 1 until 3 a.m. And I look at the people and I go, look, I need you to go because I'm done. And so I literally lay on the stairs in this old church by myself. Everyone else goes. And then they come back about 3 a.m. And there's these two little seventh grade girls that come back and they go, they're all bouncy because if you're 12 or 13, you don't lose energy ever, right? If you're working at camp, you'll experience that this summer. And they go, oh, we shared the gospel with a lady. She was like 50 and she was there like all day at Bentop Hospital and we shared the gospel and we prayed for her and she came to faith. And I'm like, you did what now? She's like, oh, it was so great. They were there and, and like all these parents are like, you know, nearly like sleep out of their eyes like, yeah, they, those girls were absolutely amazing. And I go, I'm looking at this going, oh my gosh, you met the deepest need of these people and the deepest need of me by engaging where I couldn't. I told those people later on, it's like, I, I literally feel like Nehemiah in Nehemiah's wall, that every person is doing their part. And if everyone does their part, great things happen because I can't pull it off by myself. You need people. God will often overwhelm you so that you reach out to the people beside you. And the third tactic, the last tactic, actually happens in chapter 6. See, if, if the enemy can't take you out by insulting you, if he can't take you out by intimidating you, his last and final strategy is to isolate you if he can get you alone. Chapter 6, verse 1 says it this, Now when Sambal and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab, and the rest of the enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up until that time I had not set doors on the gates, Sembalat and Geshem sent to me saying, come, let us meet together in Hecapharim, in the plain of, oh no. But they intended to do me harm. He saw through it. I think that's so hilarious. It's the plain of, oh no. Well, where's this district? Well, it's right by Sembalat's territory. It's right by Samaria. He's saying, hey, come to the valley of Oh No. I mean, it would be like modern day going, hey, why don't you come to the hotel where victims have died from an axe murderer and just spend the night. It'll be fun. Like, "Uh, I don't know about that, right? But oftentimes, the temptation toward isolation isn't that obvious. It isn't that overt. Oftentimes, the temptation to isolation is much more covert. The enemy is much more cunning. First Peter says it this way. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You see the imagery there? He's saying Satan's like a lion. Have you ever watched uh, a lion go after its prey? There's a YouTube video, one of my favorite YouTube videos, shows this. There's a little baby water buffalo at a nice little quaint pond of water. And there's a guy with like a little hand cam watching the little water buffalo. Like, oh, it's so sweet. It's drinking water. That's so cute. And they're kind of talking. Ah, look at that. We're in this African safari. It's so fun. And then suddenly an alligator jumps out and chomps on the baby water buffalo's leg. And then the camera pans over and he sees like this pride of lions, this this group of female lions. And they look over and go, we're getting in on this action, right? And they start scurrying their way across, and then one of them jumps on top of the baby water buffalo. And so you get this baby water buffalo in between a ravaging lion and an alligator. Bad spot, right? 
And suddenly, I mean, the, you see the people, uh, or you hear the people in the hand cam, and they're like terrified, like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And they're freaking out, like, what are we going to do? Nothing, I don't know, watch, watch the carnage. And, and suddenly, the camera pans over, and you see this whole group of water buffalo, and I think, personally, it's led by the mama, right? And so they're all in line behind this one, and the mama runs up to that lion that is on top of her baby and goes, mm-mm, and manhandles her, him with his horns, and that lion goes, and the alligator goes, I don't want to, I'm not involved in this, and let's go, and the baby water buffalo is let go free, and then it's almost like the music turns up like, da na 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 you know? And, and they all gather together and kind of ride off together, and, and I look at that, and I go, that is perfect. That is the Christian life. When we get isolated, we get distracted. And so what happens when we miss what God is calling us to and get alone? We get in a, we get in a lot of trouble. And so what does Nehemiah say? He sees through the valley of oh no. And in chapter 6, verse 9, he says, Their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. You see what he says? Lord, I don't want to be distracted. I'm not going to be pulled out alone to the valley of Ono. Strengthen my hand in your work. In chapter 6, verse 3, he says this. I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it to come down to you? You see what he says? I'm on God's timing. I'm in God's place. I'm fulfilling God's mission in this place, and I will not be pulled away. I'll tell you what. If you fall in line with God's call on you, you will try to, there will be insults against you, but the insults God's using to build faithfulness. There will be intimidation that comes against you, but the intimidation is meant to bring unity to you. And when the enemy tries to isolate you, you focus in on where does God have me and what has he called me to do and I'm going to land there and you'll see the valley of oh no very clearly. When am I likely to venture into the valley of oh no? When I get tired, I get vulnerable. When I get stressed, I get vulnerable. When I feel strong, I feel vulnerable. And when I feel self-confident, I'm vulnerable. And I lose focus and I start walking away from where God has me. But I tell you what, when you focus in and you land where God wants you and you stay in that place, you'll never be disappointed. David Livingston says it this way. He was a missionary to Africa and spent his entire life reaching out to the people of Africa. And he says this, People talk of the sacrifice I've made in spending so much of my life in Africa. But is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward of healthy activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with such a word, such a view, and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice, say rather a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with the foregoing of common conveniences and charities of this life, they may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All of these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us 
I never made a sacrifice. See, when you line in with God's call for you, you move through the insults, you move through the intimidation, you move through the isolation. You see Jesus on the other side saying, well done, good and faithful servant. And we see this perfectly modeled in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was insulted, responded with blessing, who was intimidated as he's on the cross. And he says, Lord, God, Father, you could free me, but not, let not my will but yours be done. And who was left alone while all of his fellow followers abandoned him. But God didn't leave him dead. He rose him in victory. And he's seated at the right hand of God. He took it so we wouldn't have to. So have you first come to the feet of Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who endured the cross to bring us freedom? If you've done that, he gives you the tools, as Oswald Chambers said, to build within you the strength to sustain a faithful life. So three applications for us as you go to your small groups. Who are the people you can go to when you feel attacked when you, to help you stand? Or what opposition do you feel um, to building a community that stands together? Number three, what can you do this week to help build community and talk to your table and talk to your team and talk to your fellows for help? I pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And I thank you that you never leave us. <laughs> you never forsake us but you will stand with us through the opposition we face. Lord, I pray that you would be with us as we break to our table groups, um, that you would help us to, uh, to think deeply about who are those men and women, guys and girls around us, to help us stand strong in the midst of our struggles. In your name we pray, amen.